Well, we started a new sermon series last week called uh, Joy in Christ, and this is part two, and the sermon title this morning is Created for Joy. And as I was thinking about what we're created for, I thought about my tools. I have tools. I love doing projects around the house. I like to kind of tinker, whether it be with electronics or woodworking or home improvement projects. Um, I, I've accumulated some tools over the year, but I'm not that sort of guy that has the unique tool for every single job. I tend to make do with what I have, or at least I try to. I'm not always successful. Sometimes you just got to buy the tool, right? But I often find myself in a situation where I don't have the right tool for the job. And so I have to find a way to take something that I have and make it work for what I need to do. Now, the problem with this is when you use a tool for something other than its purpose, its created design purpose, it often will do damage to the tool. It will very often do damage to whatever it is you're using it for. And occasionally it will do damage to you as you use it. And I have experienced all three of those often, actually. That happens a lot. Tools are made for a specific purpose. And when they're used for that purpose, they are at their best. They are fulfilling the purpose for which they were made. What about us? What's our purpose? What is this all about, this life, even with this crazy pause time that we're in right now because of the virus? But still, to think about who are we and what is this life all about? What is our purpose and how does this relate to joy? And I want to start by looking at God's purpose in creation. Why did God create us? And the answer to that from scripture, and we'll look at this a little bit, is that God created all things for the glory of God, for his own glory. Psalm 19 verse 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. God created all things to display his glory. And then when we look at us as people, it would make sense that we fit in that. We are a part of all things that God has created. Isaiah chapter 43, verses 6 and 7, God is speaking to or about the Israelites, and he says, I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. And did you see that there? He says, I created them for my glory. And this is a common theme throughout scripture. You and I are created to display and reflect and proclaim the glory of God, just like all creation, but we are created in a unique way to do so. So why did God create us? God created us for his glory, for his glory. But that answer to that question really raises another larger question. What is God's glory? What does glory even mean? If we can't think about that and maybe define that, how can we know if we're living for the glory of God? Have you ever heard the phrase that something is like nailing jello to a wall? 
And it means like it's really hard to do because Jello, if you were, I've never tried. I don't know if anybody's ever actually done this, but if you try to nail Jello to a wall, I just imagine it would sort of fall off the nail. It wouldn't work very well and probably make a mess. Now, defining God's glory could be thought of in those terms. It's hard. It's hard to define. But I think the problem is not that God's glory is so slippery or just falls apart. It's that God's glory is so immense. A better way to think of it would be like, it's like nailing the sun to your wall. Think about it for a second. You don't have a big enough nail to nail the sun to your wall. You don't have a big enough wall to nail the sun to your wall. You don't have a big enough hammer. And even if you could get the big enough hammer, nail, and wall, you're still dealing with the sun. It's the sun. How can you possibly do it? It is too great. And so when we come to defining God's glory, we have to understand that we are trying to define and understand something so far beyond us, so much greater than who and what we are. God's glory is not just a part of who he is. It's not really an attribute. God's glory is the sum total of all that he is. It is the complete picture and complete understanding of all that God is, which is why we can never fully understand the glory of God or define it because it is so much greater than us. One author says it this way, the doctrine of God's glory encompasses the greatness, beauty, and perfection of all that he is. So when we speak of God's glory, we are in one real sense, simply speaking of all that God is, who he is. But there's another aspect to his glory. When we talk about God's glory, we are speaking of the display of who he is, the things we are able to see, such as creation, such as his work through his son, Jesus Christ on the cross, through the goodness of other people, things display the glory of God. This is kind of like light coming from the sun. The sun is putting out light and heat no matter what. It's always there. It's always coming out of the sun. But we see the light from the sun and we feel it when we step outside. And the rays coming from the sun hit us. And we can talk about the glory of the sun that we know about. Maybe we've studied about what's going on inside the sun. But we can also talk about our experience and observing that glory as we feel the heat and we see the light on a a petal, on a flower in our front garden. And those rays are coming all the way from the sun. So what does it mean to display God's glory? What does it mean to be created to display God's glory? We looked at Psalm 19.1 that said all creation displays the glory of God. In Genesis chapter 1, when God speaks the world into creation, over and over again on each day of creation, you have, and God said, let there be, and then there was something. God speaks the world into creation, and there's a formula every single day for everything that God creates. And God said, let there be, and then it happens. And then you get to day six. You get to day six, and God says things differently. 
Genesis chapter 1 verse 27 says this, so God created mankind, humanity, in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. He repeats, and this is actually a basic, uh, basically a repeat from verse 26. God repeats this refrain. Instead of, he spoke into existence. He says, I am creating humanity in my image. We are created in the image of God to be a unique reflection of his glory. In fact, I would say it this way, we are created to glorify God by displaying and purposefully responding to God's glory. The rock, the trees, the mountains, they're going to display the glory of God whether they want to or not. And in some way, so do we. By our mere existence our cre- as created beings, we display the handiwork of our creator. But we were called created specifically to purposefully bring glory to God. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, Paul is entering into a debate between sort of two groups in the church over whether or not something is okay to do. And it's not something that clearly violates or, or is necessarily in line with any command of scripture. There's no command on it. They have different convictions. And Paul, rather than giving an answer to whose conviction is right, he says to both of them, you have a higher conviction, a more important conviction. And he says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Paul says that's your highest motivation. That's not only the reason for this moment or this tension or this discussion. This is the reason for your existence. Whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. The psalmist echoes this, Psalm 115, verse 1. Not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name be glory because of your love and faithfulness. The psalmist is saying, it's not about me. It's not about us. This is all about the Lord. Keep the glory focused on the Lord. But what does it mean to purposefully glorify something? To bring glory to something? I would suggest that glorifying anything involves first observing. You have to see or experience or know something about that. You can't bring glory to something purposefully if you don't know that thing at all. So you have to observe, and then there has to be a response. And that response is twofold. There's an inward response. Wow, this is amazing. In our own thoughts, and our own minds, we're responding to something that is glorious. And then there's the outward proclamation of it. Let me give you an illustration. Imagine three teenagers in a family, and they're in the backseat of the family minivan, and the family minivan is pulling up to the Grand Canyon. And these teenagers, and, and I'm not saying all teenagers do this, but some do, okay? They're on their phone, right? They're in the back seat, just on their phone, updating their status and chatting with friends and whatever it is. And they pull up to the parking lot of the Grand Canyon. And the parents say, okay, kids, let's go. Everybody out of the car. And one of them says, no, my, my friend is trying to pick her out her outfit and it's really super important that I help her out right now and I have to tell her which one I like and I can't go right now. And she never gets out of the car. The other two get out. That one that doesn't leave the car will never experience the glory, will never respond to the glory of the Grand Canyon because she won't even see it. 
Now let's take the other two. They walk up and they're still kind of on their phone and they're tapping away and they walk up to the very edge, the railing, and, and the parents look at them as good parents say, okay, put the phones away and look. So they do this, roll their eyes, they look around and one of them, after looking around, taking it all in, says, okay, fine, can I go now? And gets back on her phone and goes over and sits down and just continues to be on her phone. Now that one observed. She took it all in, but she failed to have any response of worship. There was no glorifying. There was no admitting or recognizing the glory, no inward response at all, therefore no outward response. Now let's take the third daughter. I don't know why, they're just girls, okay? So the third one, as she puts her phone down and looks around, she takes her phone and she puts it away. And inside her brain is exploding with amazement. She's looking at the layers of the rock and how the channel has cut through and all the different colors and the sun beating down on it and the the different vegetation growing out of the rock. And she is amazed. And then at the exact same time, coming out of her mouth is an expression of amazement. Wow. Have you ever noticed when you're standing with a bunch of people and you see you're all looking at the same thing and you're amazed, right? There's glorious there's a glorious sight and and you are glorying in it. Normally somebody says, look at that, which really, if you think about it, is kind of silly because you're all looking at it. You don't need to tell each other to look at it, but there is something within us. When we glory in something else, we want to tell others, look at that. Did you see that? And then we want to pick it apart. Do you see the rocks? Do you see the trees? Do you see the sun? Have you noticed this? And we go on and on and on about how amazing it is. We are created to intentionally look deep at who God is, to respond to who God is inwardly. He's amazing. He is God. We are not outwardly to proclaim, to worship, to obey. We are created to purposefully respond to God's glory. But here's the thing. I didn't call this sermon created for glory. That is an amazing topic. And we could go on and on about that. And and we'll probably look at that in other sermons as well. But I called this sermon created for joy. So the question is, How are joy and glory related? And so I want to look at the the truth, the fact from Scripture that glory and joy are intimately related. They go together. Look at Psalm 104, verse 31. Here we see the connection between glory and joy. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. Now, the author's not just saying two different things here. We use in English poetry what might be considered sound parallels. We know it as rhyming. Uh, One word at the end of the first verse or line rhymes with a word somewhere further down, the next line or two or three, depending on the meter or whatever else. So we use parallel sounds in English poetry. In Hebrew poetry, they used parallel ideas. Sometimes contrasting, sometimes similar, 
But you have to look at it and say, what is the author saying? And here, the author is saying, may the glory of the Lord endure forever. So there's glory. May the Lord rejoice in his works. And the author is saying, these are really the same thing. The glory of the Lord, the display of God's glory, and God's rejoicing in what he has done are equivalent. God takes great joy in the display of his glory. Now, Think about it this way. I like really good guitar playing. I love playing the guitar. I love watching skilled guitarists play. One of my favorite guitarists is a man by the name of Phil Keggy, a wonderful, godly Christian guy. I grew up watching him. He's a world-renowned guitarist, just absolutely phenomenal. I could listen to him and recordings of him all the time, But even more so, I love to go and see him in concert. When I see him in concert, I am amazed at the glory of his guitar playing. I sit there and I observe the skill. I listen to the sound. I listen to his singing. He's a great singer as well. He's a great songwriter. And I am amazed at his glory. But I don't just sit there going, wow, this is really glorious. I sit there with a smile on my face going, Wow, this is amazing. This is so incredible. And before the concert, I'm anticipating the concert and excited about going. During the concert, I sit there with a smile on my face, enjoying myself immensely because of the glory of his playing. After the concert, I'm grabbing anybody that will talk. Did you see how he did this? Did you see how he played that? And the joy upon joy upon joy is just overflowing. Because we are created for God's glory, our greatest desire should be in seeing and displaying God's glory. Glory and joy go hand in hand. When we bring glory to God, which should be our greatest desire, then we will have our greatest joy. God's glory should be, because we're created this way, our greatest joy. And the the corresponding truth then is we will find our greatest joy when we live for the glory of God. Psalm 105 verse 3 says, Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Do you see it there? The purpose for which you are created and your joy. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Rejoice. So we need to ask ourselves, if we are created for God's glory and seeking his glory and displaying and responding to his glory is our greatest joy, we need to ask, what happened? What happened to joy? We are not in a very joyful time right now. Let's just be honest. Things are hard. We're hurting right now. We can't get together with loved ones. Grandparents can't see their kids. People are getting sick. People that are sick can't get the treatment they need or trying to put it off because they don't want to get infected with this virus that is spreading around the world. There's struggles and dissension as governments are making decisions whether to open things up, whether not to open things up, and everybody has an opinion. People are getting angry. People are losing money. People are losing jobs. What happened to joy? And even if this wasn't going on, 
even before this happened, I think we can easily look at our world and say, where's the joy? People are seeking their own happiness, but they're not finding true and lasting joy. What's interesting is as we come to Scripture, in the Old and New Testament, we see much of the same, especially in the Old Testament when there's so much history. Throughout so much of the Lord's or or the history of the people of the Lord, they are not experiencing joy. Things are hard. They're struggling constantly. Throughout the first Peter series, we looked at that. Suffering is a normal part of living as a Christian in this world. And we looked at why. But how can we on the one hand say that suffering is normal for a Christian and on the other hand say we were created for joy? What happened? Look at Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. We see now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat from the fruit of the tree in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Look at what's happening. Here's this perfect picture of creation. And this serpent that we know from other parts of scripture is Satan himself gets Eve to doubt. Did God really say? So the serpent doubts the goodness or the truthfulness of what God has said and and flat out contradicts God when he says, you will not surely die. This is what sin is. It is going outside of God, outside of God's ways to seek our own joy. Look at what Eve is saying. She wants to find joy apart from God. The woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, and also for desirable for gaining wisdom. There's no God in that picture. There's no recognition of who God is or what he's done. This is Eve saying, I'm seeking my own joy in some other way. Sin is finding joy in a way that is contrary to who God is and what God has declared. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And again, these are two different things. Sinning and falling short of the glory of God are not two separate things. They are the same thing. Instead of focusing on God's glory, keeping our gaze, our affection, our joy on the displaying and the reflection of who God is in his glory, we are falling short and saying, I'm going to seek something else. I'm just going to settle for this thing over here or this thing over here that I see that I think will bring me joy. We fall short of the glory of God. We pursue something lesser. We pursue a substitute or lesser glory. And when we do that, we equally find a substitute and lesser 
joy that doesn't satisfy and doesn't sustain. This is what's wrong with the world. This is what happened to joy. In this joy-filled creation that God made, sin entered in, took the focus off of God's glory, focused it on something lesser than, and brought in a substitute joy that never fulfills. Romans 8.22 describes that all of creation is groaning. Even the created order, the, the natural world that God created is affected by our sin and it's groaning, it's hurting. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. The substitute has brought in something so far less than the joy for which we were created. Sin enters the created world and seeks to steal our joy. But fortunately, God's creative purposes can never be thwarted. When we understand the link between God's glory and God's joy and our joy, we start to see amazing things all throughout Scripture. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. A new creation. We were created to display God's glory and correspondingly experience joy. We fell, and yet in salvation in Christ, we are a new created. The created purposes of God are restored in salvation through Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 1 says God does this for his own glory. Three times in this chapter we are told that we are saved for the glory of God. Verses 4 through 6 talks about he predestined us for adoption. Verse 6 then says to the praise of his glorious grace. Verse 12 talks about those who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And then verses 13 and 14 talk about the Ephesian believers. And it says they too were saved for God's glory uh, to the praise of his glory. When Christ saves us, we are a new creation. The created purpose that God has for us is restored so that we can bring glory to him and so that we can experience the joy for which he has created us. This is why part of the fruit of the Spirit is joy in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, patience, kindness, or peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Joy. It is a fruit. It comes from our salvation in Christ because our salvation in Christ restores the purpose for which we were created. But wait, there's more because we can go beyond just the joy we have in Christ now and we can look at the future. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10 says, On the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you because you believed our testimony to you. There Paul is talking about the second coming when Jesus Christ will come back and he says, On that day when Christ returns, which is an unending day, he will be glorified. So we will bring glory to him and that glory will go on and on forever and ever. If glory and joy are related, what does that mean for our joy? When we will purposefully, intentionally, willfully display the glory of God, reflect the glory of God, we will experience unending joy. Christ's work restores 
God's created purposes that we might bring glory to God and correspondingly restores our greatest joy. Jesus understood this. And in John chapter 15, 11, which I think I'm going to be looking at a lot throughout this series, Jesus tells his disciples, I've told you this. He's told them all different things. But he says, I've told you this so that my joy, and think, who brings more glory to God than God the Son, Jesus Christ? So who has more joy in God than God the Son, Jesus Christ? Jesus says, my joy, this perfect joy, may be in you because it is in the nature of joy to want to overflow and share that joy, that your joy may be complete. Jesus wants us to have joy because he knows. He knows because he was there and all things were created through him. He knows that you and I were created for joy the joy of fulfilling our purpose to display, declare, and respond to the glory of the Lord in all that we do. So how does it help? I mean, I hope this has been encouraging, but how does it help to know that we are created for joy? How does that help us in a global pandemic? How does it help us in personal struggles? It helps us because we need to look past our situations and go deeper with our roots for joy. That's what I talked about last week, and that is the point of joy throughout Scripture. It's not to be based on our situations. It's to be based on the eternal truth of God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so when we push past our circumstances and want to see, to observe, and to respond to the glory of God so that we can glory in him and find our greatest joy, then we see a deeper and unchanging truth. Isaiah chapter 46, verse 10 says this. This is God speaking. I make known the end from the beginning. From ancient times, what is, uh, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. Think about what that means. If God created us to find our joy in him, if he saves us through his son, Jesus Christ, to find our joy in him, if he has an eternal purpose for us to find our joy in him and none of his plans ever fail, then you look hardship in the face and you say, I've got an unending, unbreakable joy assured to me by God, my father, by Jesus Christ, my savior, by the Holy Spirit who is with me. I can have joy. Look beyond the situations. But the other reason that understanding we're created for joy and that this is God's eternal purpose for our creation is to understand when we look at situations, if we believe that God is sovereign, that situation of trial or struggle or suffering is always temporary because we know we are created for something above and beyond that. And we talked about this in the first Peter series, where Peter says in chapter 5, verse 10, And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, there's glory, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. Knowing that we are created for joy helps us to understand that all suffering All situations that in and of themselves have no joy are going to be temporary because God's created purpose for us and for all of the world 
will never fail. And we are created for joy. Now that doesn't mean everything's going to be perfect and wonderful, but it means in the imperfect, difficult times, such as what our world is going through now, we have underneath us this truth that we are created for joy. We can hold on to that truth and experience that joy even in the midst of our difficulties and know that the difficulty is not going to last. But God's purpose will last forever. You know, in many ways, we are like those three teenagers. We are so busy with lesser things, so enamored and caught up with lesser things in our lives that we refuse to sometimes even look at God's glory. We don't even want to look. At other times, we don't want to respond. We look quickly and ah, whatever. Heard it before. Grew up going to Sunday school. Went to the VBS thing or heard the pastor talk about it. I just don't really care. And there's no response. But if we would look, if we would really look, and we would say, I'm created to look at the glory of God, to understand, at least in part, the glory of God, to reflect the glory of God, and that in and through all of that, I will find my greatest joy. I think we would be amazed. And we would want to look at those around us and say, look at that. Did did you see what Jesus did? Did you see what he said on the cross when he said it was finished? Did you see the empty tomb that my Savior is alive? Do you see that he's reigning on high? Look at that. Isn't that amazing? What great joy we have in Jesus. Because that's why we are created. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we are easily distracted. And so as we look at joy throughout this sermon series, and today as we just look at this idea that we are created for joy, may we understand that was part of your intentional design, your intentional purpose for us specifically as people created in your image. To behold, respond to, display on purpose your glory. And you know, because it drips throughout the pages of Scripture, that it is in seeking your greatest glory that we will seek and find our greatest joy. It is the purpose for which we are created. And so may we not settle for lesser things. May we push away the distractions. May we force ourselves through to see your glory, even in the difficult moments, and to hold on to that joy that is ours because we're created for it. It's ours because you saved us for it. And it's ours because it will be our joy forever and eternity forever and ever. And all of this is because of your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Pastor Al and Jaden and Kiana are going to come and lead us again in worship.